Uh, as Megan uh, mentioned, what a, what a weird high school experience. Not weird for them, that was just high school. So uh, as, as we all look back on our own experiences, and what a testimony of just life in church. And um, it's, it's the life cycle of church as kids come in and are loved on by so many different people, Sunday school teachers and youth volunteers and you know, folks in the foyer, and as they, they grow up and then they fly away and we cry and, and then they come back for a little bit sometimes, but we are uh, just so thrilled and excited for you and, and what's happening next. And uh, I don't know, Andy just probably is making fun of me over there for what I just said. Uh, as Angela mentioned, we are in the, uh, we're starting a new series called, uh, called The Spirit Is, and I appreciate that the Pope, you know, really helped me out this morning. Uh, I, I thought Angela was going to read that quote from him. I was like, man, I could have paid him to say that. Uh, so if you get a chance to look up uh, whatever the Pope said, he has a really great little saying about who the Holy Spirit is and the importance uh, to us as followers of Jesus. And just like our last series on God's kingdom, I, I kind of want to turn the spotlight on something, or maybe I should say someone, that all followers of Christ, uh, we know that the Holy Spirit exists, but for whatever reason, it's some, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is often beyond our daily awareness. And uh, I, as a pastor, I want to turn the spotlight on the Holy Spirit, because um, I, I mean, my hope is to change that, to make the Spirit something part of our daily experience. And the uh, covenant, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which our church is a member of that denomination, uh, they have six kind of values that they affirm. And one of those is a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And you notice the wording. It's much different than just saying, hey, we believe in the Holy Spirit or we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. No, there's something there. There's this intentional connection. There's a relationship with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And this is very critical to being a Christian, but it's not automatic. I made the comment this week to to someone on our leadership team, like, hey, this is fundamental stuff. We've got to get this down. And, and they said, well, you know, it's almost kind of next level, like the Holy Spirit. And um, most of us discover church either as an adult or we kind of grow up in church. And, and, and so, we, you know, we've submitted our life to Jesus and they tell us to go to church. And so you just start going to church. And um, sometimes... People really grow and thrive. Uh, other times, people kind of fade, and they go, yeah, I don't know, I guess I know Jesus, but I'm not really sure what the whole church thing is about. Or there's this huge cataclysmic, life-altering, changing event that shifts patterns and schedules and all kinds of stuff for entire societies, like it did for the last two years. And you kind of get out of the cabinet, and you're like, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I'm good. I know Jesus. Um, Ten years ago, Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God, Reversing the Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And uh, when I saw the title ten years ago, I thought, man, Francis is really on to something. And then I neglected to read the book. Okay? <laughs> I was like, wow, that looks like really good. I should read that. And I never did. And I was really surprised this week when I thought of it and discovered that was ten, ten years ago. And so, like all good bloggers, 
vloggers or political pundits, I decided that I didn't need to read the book. I would just read what other people said about it, okay? And then pretend like those are my own words, amen? So I, but the back cover, I was like, man, this is such a good book. Uh, Francis said this, we may pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but how often do we live with an awareness of only the first two? Today's church has admired the gift of God's Spirit, but neglected to open it. And John Beeson, uh, he, he, he wrote this really great, um, what do you call it, book review of it, and he, he, did, he, he actually read the book, I'm pretty sure, and he quotes Francis Chan, he says, this is good, okay, this is why, this is why I'm building up to this case, okay? the light of the American church is flickering and nearly extinguished, having largely sold out to the kingdoms and values of this world, and that missing something in the American church is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. And so even though that was written 10 years ago, man, I'd say he nailed it. Like after the experience of the pandemic, you're like, oh, that exposed something is amiss. And surprisingly, when I Googled this, the first thing that came up this week is Francis has just released, like in March, so just two months ago, a series of like shorts on YouTube about forgotten God, you know, the tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. And so obviously it's, it's, it's still on his mind and it's on my mind and it's on, it's on the Pope's mind, it's on all of our minds, um, maybe because today is Pentecost. And I will tell you what that is, uh, unlike Angela, who wouldn't do that. Uh, Pentecost is 50 days after Easter. It was a Jewish holiday at the time, but that's when the gift of the Holy Spirit was officially given by God, descended upon the followers of Christ. That's what they have been waiting for. And uh, this has been kind of a, a perfect setup. I wish I could say that I had this master plan over the winter that I'm going to talk about Jesus, and then we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, and then we're going to follow it up with the Spirit. But I didn't have that plan. This just kind of evolved, which I'll chalk up to the Holy Spirit, right? But without Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, and without the spirit transforming us as citizens of the kingdom, not much is going to change in our lives or in the world. And um, the opening book of Acts, we learn that, the, uh, that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was resurrected from the dead. And he appeared over a period of 40 days, this is Acts 1, and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, uh, right after he says that, Jesus ascends into heaven, and 10 days later, Pentecost happens. But when they hear him say that, I don't think they had any concept, or at least a very vague concept, of what he was talking about and, and what was about to happen to them and to the other followers of Jesus. And their minds were pretty much still stuck on politics, that there's this geopolitical thing that Jesus is about to hatch. And and uh, the confirmation is this, is because they look around, they're like, hey, there's only 11 of us. Somebody's got to replace Judas. We need 12. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. There's only 11 of us. Let's get another one. They draw lots. 
bang, they find Matthias to place Judas. I don't know if that's what was on their mind, but they did do that. And it's kind of weird. But the reason behind the gift of the Spirit, why, why they need the Spirit, is because how else are broken, flawed, imperfect people going to keep pushing the mission of God, his reign through his people over his place? And so extending God's reign isn't going to happen unless people have the power of God in them. And that's when it happened. The Holy Spirit arrives. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So imagine that, if you can, for just a moment. I mean, that's a pretty incredible scene. And if you think about it, if you put yourself in the place of the disciples, I bet everything that Jesus had told them came into sharp focus. Like the time he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Advocate? What are you talking about, Jesus? To help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. How is that going to work? How will he be in you? Jesus is talking about the advocate, the counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. The disciples of Jesus had gotten used to Jesus's, I mean, things were just different with Jesus. Uh, how he taught, how he acted, his kind of goals, what happened. I mean, it was all a little out of the ordinary. So they were kind of used to that. This, this one kind of qualifies as different too. Once the prophet, uh, God was speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, and he was speaking about the restoration of of Israel, of his people, after they'd been conquered. And so the Babylonians came in, they conquer uh, the kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians pick out all the best and brightest in that society. They want all the skilled people, the people who know, know how to do stuff, the craftsmen, the, the, the brains, the talent of that society, and they take them all away to Babylon. And everybody else can just figure it out on their own. And they're going, what did we do wrong? What? I thought, where's God? How, did, how could this happen? And prophets like Ezekiel are like, well, remember you've been killing people like me for a really long time. And so God speaks to Ezekiel. He says this. He's like, I will give you, this is what he's supposed to say to the people of Israel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What if God meant he would put his spirit in us 
literally. Wow. He'd literally put his spirit in us, that God would come to dwell inside of me. You know, the apostles would spend the rest of their lives working this out. How does this work, God? I mean, read, see the rest of the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. Um, we call it the New Testament for a reason. It's the new covenant in Jesus' blood, the old covenant, the old way of doing things, the Mosaic law, the Torah. That was literally in sheep's blood. But that was no longer what defined our relationship with God. Now it's Jesus and the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. God in three persons. So this was all so radically different from people who follow, like how God worked for people who follow God. On the day of Pentecost, this all changes. They were used to doing things and not doing things. That's what defined your relationship with God. But to Jesus... It all became about what he had done. He had provided us lasting forgiveness. He had helped reconcile us to God and allowing God's spirit to take up residence within us. That's a tectonic shift. We take it for granted now because we've had 2,000 years to warm up to the idea. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. In fact, I just watched a, a Marvel thing about like incarnation is really what it was about how gods take up residence. You know, it's the Egyptian gods taking up residence in people. And it's like, wow, that is a total New Testament concept right there about God taking up residence inside of me. In the second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells early Christians they're a walking, talking embodiment of the Holy Spirit. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, you show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You can see the echoes of the Old Testament in this. And then he goes on to say, here's what the spirit does for you. The spirit gives us access to a new life. The spirit makes us competent and able to do God's work. I mean, the Spirit even gives us special abilities and callings to help with his work. In the Spirit, we have newfound hope. You know, this world that we experience in and every day, that's not all there is. There's something more, and it's better. We have this newfound hope in the power of the Spirit. Uh, in the Spirit, we used to have this veil. It was like this veil between God and us. But because of Jesus, that's gone. The Spirit provides us free, complete, unhindered access to God. And that level of access wasn't the way it used to be in Moses' time. But now it's different. And then he says this. The Apostle Paul says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul makes this statement 
The Spirit is freedom. And for Paul, he's, he's saying freedom from the old way of relating to God. To a new life in God's Spirit, where we have free access at any time, any place, to the Almighty. When I was in college, I was... Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to be, and so I just took all the classes. And I, you know, sciences, math. I was an engineering major for a hot minute. That was a good decision. Um, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And, but all this time, I really felt like there's this little voice in my head that guiding me towards serving the Lord vocationally. So finally, I give in. I'm, I switch to humanities. I'm in biblical studies. I'm going to be a youth pastor. And as I'm talking to this, there's lots of Christians on campus, and this one girl was telling me about her relationship with God. And she's like, oh man, it's just incredible. Like, I can just sense the Lord's presence wherever I go. I mean, I can just like literally break into song or into worship. I can be riding a bus. I can be on a bike. I can be taking a walk in the park. It doesn't matter where I am. I just feel like the Lord is with me. And as she's sitting there and I'm nodding my head, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had no idea what she was talking about. But it bugged me. What is she talking about? I didn't even know that was there. And over the years, God has brought people and experiences into my life to help show me what she was talking about. And so now... I could say that. I don't know why I don't always do it, but I can. I can, be for, uh, I can be hiking in the woods, and I can just look around and break into song if I want to about God's goodness and grace and presence in my life. I can be in my car. I can be at the coffee shop. I can be wherever. And if I want to, I can enter into this life that's experienced only in God's presence. And the reason we want to do this is because we transform. It's not for this feeling that we get when we feel like the Lord is right there next to us, as awesome as that is. That's not why we do it. We do it because we want to be with God. We want him to transform us, to change us qualitatively in how we experience our lives. And uh, the message version of that uh, 2 Corinthians 3 passage I read, read, in verse 18, it says this. It says, our lives are gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives, and we become like him. So I'm curious, is that compelling? Like, to be like Jesus? I, I know some, as like, amen! But there were points in my life where I would have been like, amen, I know that's the right answer, but I don't know. Do I want to be like Jesus? It depends on our view, I suppose. But every now and then, something happens in our life that completely rocks our world, and God has a way of using those experiences to get our attention. 
So in the book of Acts, that's short, the book of Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. Okay, and the early church thought this was so important that they wrote it down. Like, we've got to remember this stuff to tell other people. And so you read the book of Acts, and it's this incredible, you know, compilation of I can't believe that happened stories. And, you know, the cynical part of me reads those and goes, did that really happen? And then you think about all the awful, horrible deaths that most of these apostles died, and you're like, you know, if this was all made up, don't you think at some point they would have been like, just kidding, that really didn't happen? But there's something there that they're willing to go through all of this hardship. I mean, you see this, I mean, face even death. The Apostle Paul is a prime example. So in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in a town called Philippi. And there, were, there was a slave girl there who, who Paul had freed from this demonic influence. And her owners weren't very happy. And they weren't very happy because she made them a lot of money. There was some spirit in her that enabled her to be like a fortune teller. And so when they show up in town, she starts following them around, telling everybody, hey, these are servants of the Most High God. Interesting way of saying that. These are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And so, you know, every day they walk through town and this girl is following around saying that. Finally, Paul gets so annoyed and he turns around to her and he's like, in the name of Jesus, you know, I command you to come out of her. He like tells this evil spirit to leave. And it does. Two questions. Why didn't he do that right away? I don't know. He finally gets annoyed and he does it. And then when she can't tell fortunes anymore, the owners take them in front of very public square in front of the, the court. That's where they had a court. It says, these guys are stirring up trouble. Everybody's in their uproar teaching us stuff that isn't Roman. Like, we got to get rid of them. And so immediately they're beaten. They're stripped. They're beaten. They're thrown in jail. They're fastened into stocks, which are just around your feet, and it's meant to make your life really uncomfortable. I would say that's a bad day, wouldn't you? But in Acts 16, verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison, prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And if he didn't kill himself... They would kill him instead because he failed in his duty. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because he'd heard about all this stuff that had happened in the town. They're servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? Then he replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke about the word of the they, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. 
they were washed. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God and his whole, he and his whole household. So that's an amazing story. But who escapes being lynched by a mob, being beaten senseless in public, and is still awake at midnight, praying and singing hymns? That's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? I would be whimpering, wallowing, you know, probably a near death at this point. But Paul and Silas, they probably weren't real comfortable. You know, their feet are in stocks, they're bruised and bleeding, they're probably chained. But you can see them encouraging each other. They're leaning into the Lord for strength. So I understand what Paul meant when he said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's talking about our access to God. But what about this? Does this qualify as, as freedom? I mean, sure, they, can, they walked out of jail miraculously, but they seemed like they were experiencing freedom while they were still in jail. How is that possible? I mean, they're still in jail and they're kind of in church. They're in God's presence. They're experiencing the life, the hope, the joy of being with God. What's that do to someone? And how do I get that? So I heard this passage read on, on a podcast I listen to often. I talk about it often. It's Pray As You Go. And uh, it was just a couple weeks ago. And when I heard it, I filed it mentally away like, oh, in a couple weeks, that needs to be a part of that message I'm going to do. And they took this whole idea of freedom to the next level. They said this, Paul and Silas discover that sharing the good news of Jesus can be demanding and dangerous. But in the midst of distress, God acts to bring about liberation and new life for Paul and Silas and for the jailer and his family. And then they took it to the next level, and they, praise you go, they asked this, what chains in my life need unfastening? What wounds do I carry that need washing? Where do I long for new life to grow? I ask Jesus to act in my life and in the lives of those around me. When we have free, complete, unrestricted access to God, and we train ourselves to enter that presence, and by training, I mean we hang out with other Christians who can show us how to do it. Because I'm not sure by reading a book that maybe we would quite catch it. Or by going to church each and every week and listening to a sermon as much as I would like to say, oh yeah, you're all going to figure this out, I don't know. But when you spend life with other followers of Jesus who are able to go to this next level, they show you. And our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. When this happens, we're free to heal. We're free to become the people God created us to be. And I want to tell you as your pastor of Cascade Covenant Church, 
Don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for anything less than complete, total, free access to God. Don't be the kind of Christian who just checks off going to church uh, each week from your to-do list. Don't be the kind of church attender that checks out because this doesn't seem relevant anymore. Uh, Or don't decide that, you know, really this church and Jesus and relationship with God thing doesn't really align with my social values or my political values or my schedule. Those are all other gods, by the way, idols. Be the kind of Christ follower who's going to pursue God's mission, take a beating for it, sit bruised, bloodied, humiliated in jail, and still experience the joy and presence and peace of God Almighty. Maybe that sounds too extreme. But then I meet people who show me that it's not. Uh, This week I was talking to a friend of mine who got some really, really bad health news. Like the worst kind that you could ever get. And I sat in near disbelief as I talked to them on the phone. And they told me that the Lord had um, been working in their life to bring them to a point where they could hear this. And uh, in the last five years, God had, after many years of wandering, in the last five years, this person, like, hey, God finally brought me to a place where I listened, where I leaned into him. And his goodness and grace and joy has broken into my life. I've experienced such healing. And this person went on and on and on and on and on about how thankful they were and appreciative of everyone and everything. And then they said this, while I wish the news was better, I'll just keep living until I die, and then I'll go home to be with the Lord. And I I sat there and I thought, that's all any one of us can do, right? I'll just keep on living until I die, except most of us are just scared of something, or we're trying to control something. And eventually we'll get there and we'll start living and then we'll die. No, I'll just keep on living until I die. And I've done this, I I do this professionally, right? I'm used to dealing with people who hear bad news. I have a really, you know, attuned antenna to people who are in denial or are trying to avoid something or escaping something. And my antenna didn't go off. I was like, they really mean it. And that's when it hit me. I was like, that's the spirit of the Lord. It's freedom. And it frees us in the midst of the world's crappiest circumstances to have hope and peace and purpose and joy and healing, to be washed, to be free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, And he frees us from our anxiety, our suffering, our pain. He frees us from what makes us self-conscious or hesitant or burdened. He frees us from being preoccupied and allows us to enter the sweet, sweet presence of our maker. That's out there for you and me if we go get it. 
If we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus and we surrender ourselves to his Holy Spirit, this kind of transformation happens in us. And there's nothing more than I want for you than to taste that. It's good. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you are so good to us. You've provided so many blessings, and, and man, I, there's so many years of my life, moments of my life, I've wasted being worried and anxious and trying to figure out how to do this and what's next. And, and then you break in and remind us, oh, you're with us, you're with us, yes, all the time, but you're also waiting for us. And you've given us the gift of your spirit that dwells inside of us. Help us to listen. Help us to do. Help us to live, Lord. Help us to enter your presence and to become part of your kingdom and this movement of what here you're doing here on this earth, Lord. It's not just for me, myself, and I. It's for, it's for others. It's for our family. It's for our neighborhoods, our communities, our churches, Lord. Won't you do this work in us? We pray that. And we are so grateful for our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, who encourage us and support us and pray for us and also show us how to follow your way. And as we think of those people that are in our lives, Lord, um, I pray that we would just want to spend more time with them. That we would want to spend more time with others who maybe might look to us that way too. Help us to be your church, your humble servants. And this we pray, amen. Well, I want to close our time this morning uh, sharing communion. And um, we're, we're working our way through these cups. We ordered a lot of them for, during the pandemic. And I keep thinking, we're going to be about out. And then the next like, wave of COVID hits. And it's like, oh, maybe it's good that we still have these things. Uh, if you didn't pick up one of these, they're at the doors. Or Dave can, has a little tray in back. He can bring one to you. This is, this is the, the cup. And also there's a little wafer on top, which is the bread. And so make sure that you get one of those. And if you have yet to experience, you kind of have to open them first. You don't ever have to worry about one of these being unsealed. It's almost impossible to open. They call it pastor-proof. That's what they call it. Okay. It's our privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And all of you who put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and desire to follow him as the leader of your life, all of you who repent from your sin and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with your neighbor and intend to live a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're invited to this table. Come to this sacred table not because you must, but because you may not to make a statement about how righteous or religious you are, 
but to state that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ, you desire his presence. And as we prepare ourselves as persons and also as people, I invite you to take a moment of silent confession and prayer to ready your hearts. Please take a moment and do so now. Oh Lord, we come before you and, and we ask that you would forgive us. You'd cleanse us, Lord, from our unrighteousness, for those things that we've done, for the things that we've left undone. And that you would restore and renew us, Lord. For that, we give thanks. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.